Hello and welcome to episode 10 of PathPod. I'm Dr. Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado. You can find me on Twitter at MArnold underscore PeedPath. And this is our second edition of IHC Talk. I'm here today with Dr. Andrew Belizzi of the University of Iowa. He's on Twitter at IHC underscore Guy. We're the, uh, we're the Chromogen brothers. Yeah, I'm Dab. And I'm App. And our co-host today is Dr. Sanam Lugavi from MD Anderson Cancer Center. She's on Twitter at S-A-N-A-M-L-O-G-H-A-V-I, our IHC sister TMD, the Blue Chromogen. Welcome to the program, Sanam. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. So we got some special guests today to talk with us about HemePath, Dr. Kamran Mirza, Loyal University. He's on Twitter at K-M-I-R-Z-A. And Dr. Eve Crane, now of the Cleveland Clinic. She's on Twitter at Eve Marie Crane. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Eve, are, are you in Cleveland? I am. How, yeah. long, how, long have you, how long have you been out there? About 10 days. Awesome. So had Where a Sanjay for us. Oh, yeah. No, I, I got, well, I just called him. I haven't seen him in person, which is sad. Have you been into the office? Yeah, I guess I'm on service tomorrow. So I was in there, like, doing trainings and figuring out where stuff is. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. How big is the department? How many pathologists do they have? I'm not sure. It must be at least 100. It's, it's pretty oh, big. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yes. Wow. That's huge. That's it's huge. Big. But nobody knows, like, everyone's just, like, hiding in their offices now. So it's just, I'm not yeah. sure. Hopefully yeah, I'll find out. It's definitely a strange time to start in a new place. I can, yeah, with everyone kind of being distant. Eve, who's your feline friend? <laughs> oh, that's Ginger. Yeah, she's like, she wants to be involved. She's in the Path Presenter series, like, quite a lot, like, taking a bath and stuff. <laughs> oh, no. She's like, <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. Anyway, oh, we'll awesome. see. Hopefully she'll behave for this. Otherwise, I'll have to get cut out. <laughs> That's cool. Well, welcome, everyone, and welcome, Ginger. You guys know that PathPod is in part focused on educating medical students about pathology. And I know, Sana, we got to hear a little bit from you last episode of IHC Talk. And Kamran, we heard a little bit about your backstory on the PathPod Stories episode. So I want to hear all of you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in team path and Eve also tell us a little bit about your backstory and how you got into pathology. So Sonam, why don't we start with you? Do you want to know the truth or the, the presentable <laughs> version of it? Give us, give us the fun, the, the fun and interesting version. Will, would be great. Okay. I'll tell you the honest truth. And I guess this is going to be broadcasted to the world. So everyone will know my secret. I think Kamran and Eve probably know this story. They probably heard it before, but I was all set and determined to do derm path. I had done all of my electives, uh, everything, all of my research in derm path. And obviously derm path being super competitive. Um, I went and interviewed at Memorial Sloan Kettering and for search path. And I interviewed for um, search path at MD Anderson wanting to do my second fellowship in derm path. Uh, so Memorial Kettering said, no promises. We can't promise you a derm path spot. And it was in New York. You know, it was a harder transition for me. I was a resident in California. And so I came to MD Anderson and, um, you know, the MD Anderson people said, we're not going to make you a promise, but it's highly likely that if you take the search path spot, we'll give you the derm path spot next year. And I said, okay. Um, so I took the search path spot. And then I came back for an interview for the germ path spot next year. And of course I didn't get it. 
So I was devastated. And at the time, who are you again? (laughs) At the time, I was doing a heme path rotation, right? So when they broke the news to me and said, you know, you didn't get the spot, I just started bawling, crying. And my attending, who some of you may or may not know, her name uh, was Rhonda Altabe. Um, you know, unfortunately, she um, she died. She had cancer. Uh, but um, she was an amazing person. Just like the, her personality, her character, smart hematopathologist. You know, she was your typical Middle Eastern, full of energy um, woman that I love as a person, she was like my best friend. Uh, and she said, you know what? Why are you crying? This is the best thing that's ever happened to you. You should do heat path. You're on heat path anyway. You know what? You're going to Andy Anderson. And I know Jeff Medeiros. He was my attending. I did heat path with him. I'm going to call him right now. And she started Googling his name. <laughs> like literally, I was sitting there. So she calls him and she says, hi, Jeff, this is Rhonda. And he's like, oh, hi, Rhonda. Nice to hear from you. How are you doing? And she's like, I have this resident, and obviously she's trying to sell me to him right now, right? This is late in the season. This is December. And she says, she is amazing. I want you to take her for your fellowship. And she's being, you know, the pushy Middle Eastern woman that she is. And then Dr. Madera says, you know, this is really late in the season. We, we're actually like, we're almost decided. We've done all of our interviews. Um, and almost, you know, we've made a decision. We're meeting, like, let's say this is Wednesday. We're meeting Friday to make a decision. If she wants to come, she needs to come now. So then I have another friend that's on the rotation with me. And she says, I'm going to cover for you. You should go. Right. So then I get on the plane the next day. I go to uh, Emmy Anderson. And while I'm in the plane, I make a phone call to another person I know at Emmy Anderson, who's the famous Elvio Silva, the GYN pathologist. And I, so he would, um, you know, he worked at my residency hospital too. And I said, you have to call Dr. Medeiros and put in a good word for me. I cannot afford to lose this. I don't have any research in heat path. They're not going to take me. You have to call him. So he said, okay, I'll call him. So he called and he basically, I don't know what he said, but he put in a good word too. And I showed up to the interview, obviously having no background in heat path, but because of those two amazing individuals, I think Dr. Medeiros took a chance and gave me the spot. And then, you know, the rest after that is history. It, it worked out. I am so incredibly happy with the way things worked out. And I don't think, you know, I could have planned it any better if I had actually planned to do Heme Path. I have to say, I did not know this story. And you were born to do Heme Path. Like, you're a Heme Path empress. Like, I mean, a goddess. So, like, to me, this is, like, a fascinating story. And, you know, what a loss for Dermpath. Honestly, I mean, you are, like, an encyclopedia of Heme Path now. So, like, I mean, oh my I, gosh, thank I mean you. you know, no, seriously, I'm, like, I, I, I you know, I mean, you're my friend. And, of, of course, I like you as a friend. But the idea is that this is, not, this is just professional. As another hematopathologist, like, that is amazing. What an amazing story. Thank you. That means the world. But I think, you know, like I said, it was just a very fortunate coincidence. I think it really worked to my advantage. I didn't know how much I could have loved Team Path um, and how much I would love Team Path. But, it, you know, it worked out amazingly. So I'm very, very happy. It's amazing how many things in our training hinge on mentors. Um, Absolutely. I actually had a hematopathologist who was a fantastic mentor and did a really big thing for Christina and I, uh, Elaine Jaffe at the NIH actually created a spot in the residency program 
so that I could finish residency at the NIH while Christina took a fellowship at Hopkins. So Wow, yeah. that is amazing. That is incredible. amazing. So I think, you know, maybe for the trainees out there that don't get their first choice of fellowship, maybe they can use this story and, you know, not lose hope. Sometimes it's just not meant to be. And, um, you know, you end up somewhere better than what you had planned for yourself. Yeah, it worked out amazingly. Kamran, I loved your PathPod story about how you got into pathology and how you chose medicine over theater. Why don't you tell us about how you got interested in HemePath? Right. So I was a second year resident uh, at the University of Chicago. They have a three-month hematopathology rotation. It's the only three months you get to do. I mean, you can do another elective later on, but it's contiguous. So unlike like the one month at a time. Uh, so I went in, uh, in my second year, uh, started with a group of two uh, amazing, amazing co-residents and friends. Um, and the trio goes in and you basically come out after three months. And, you know, I knew, I knew a little bit about like the power of hematopathology at the University of Chicago. Uh, but, you know, my background had been in lung. I, my PhD had been in lung pathology as well. So, you know, I was thinking I'm going to do thoracic and I did thoracic after hematopathology. But I went in and I remember Dr. Vardaman, you know, introducing everyone to, you know, hematopathology. And I knew of this guy, you know, I mean, and, and this whole idea, I guess. Um, and he sat us down and, you know, he, he had the, he just has the most amazing demeanor. And he said, well, I'm going to start going over this peripheral blood smear and you can just tell me what cells you identify. And then I will be able to tell which level you're at, right? Where you're at. <laughs> so, so, you know, it was like Charlie, Viju and me. Okay. So Charlie, Viju and me are sitting there and I think he stopped at like a, a really important cell or whatever. And Viju immediately knew it. She was fantastic. Okay. And then she, he stopped at Charlie and Charlie always wanted to do heme path. So he knew it too. And I was the person who really couldn't tell a neutrophil from, I mean, I was really, really bad. Okay. So if you're in medical school or in residency right now, and you really cannot tell your white cells apart, it's okay. You know, there's success at the end of the road. If you work hard, he stopped at a cell. Okay. And even everyone is going to like laugh at me. I think I'm like being too vulnerable here. He stopped at a cell and he asked me what it was. And I said, I had no idea what it was. So I said, it's a monocyte. He, he broke from the microscope and he looked at me and he said, <laughs> you know, it's always a good idea to say uh, monocyte when you're not sure about a cell, right? Because that probably would be the right answer. However, Kamran, this is a nucleated red cell. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he said, and then he went back to the microscope and he very calmly said, so I'm going to start at the beginning. Okay. Because <laughs> see, that's how bad I was. At the end of those three months, oh, no. you know, I mean, literally I would, we would be talking about anemia and I would be quoting his papers. You know, Janet Rowley was alive at that time. And we heard the stories of when she was seeing, you know, like the chromosomes and he was seeing the cells and she would just run down and be like, you know, I'm seeing 922. I'm seeing 922 in all these patients. And Dr. Vardaman was like, yeah, they have like leukocytosis and like they, they publish CML. I mean, you know, in, that, in those rooms, it wasn't even the basement. It was the sub-basement of the freaking hospital, okay? The, the, the sewer lines ran above it, okay? And that's how like deep down it was. And like they, they described like, you know, 15, like so many things. I don't want to like misquote, but like a bunch of these things they described, like six, nine, I think they described, they described like a bunch of like things in 821. And so, and then even the hematologists who would come down, they had like this intrinsic respect for Dr. Vardaman. Like he is God because effectively for, for most myeloid, if not all hematopoietic things, he was. And he is like the most humble person. He would pick up the phone himself and, you know, people would be asking about CBC results and he'd be like, let me find out for you. I mean, like this, 
you know, just this different human being. And then his second fellow who was also there um, as one of my attendings, Dr. Anastasi. So both of these people, they, my life changed forever. That's all I can say. I, I just knew that this is what I want to do. So he path at the University of Chicago is pretty competitive, you know, and, and so I wanted to do the fellowship. And Dr. Vardaman had fellows lined up for years, but, but he was at that time, this was 2012, 13, he had decided he's going to retire. So because he was re- deciding that he's going to retire, he had left a year open. There was no fellow, right? And then another potential director would have taken it over, right? And that would have been my PGY3 year, right? So the year I was going into, uh-huh. And I was just like, I, want, I went to my program director and I said, you know, you just have to be board eligible. You don't have to be board certified to do a fellowship. And I just begged them. So Charlie, who was with me, was my year. So Charlie and I were both told that we would get the fellowship. One person has to decide who's doing it as PGY5 and who's doing it as PGY3. And I was like, I'm doing it as PGY3. Mm-hmm. Right? Because I didn't want to risk the Dr. Vardaman not be there. Uh, and so I did my heme fellowship as a third year resident, like technically a PGY three, and then went back into residency to complete fourth, like third and fourth year of residency. Wow. Uh, and then, but then Dr. Vardaman didn't retire to like a few years ago. So like he just kept working. Uh, and so that technically wasn't necessary, but again, that was a really long story, but I can tell you that, you know, I mean, even to this day, I look at like subtle things inside cells and there, it isn't something I can tweet about, or it isn't something I can write about, but it's just the way like they kind of lovingly taught me that hemepath stuff. I mean, it goes back to this whole idea of mentors. You know, I, I owe them everything. Honestly, it's just amazing. It's too bad. You can't show my goosebumps. I had goosebumps uh, all over my, I, I swear to God. I'm filling out my hemepath fellowship application right now. <laughs> <laughs> Camera can see inside cells. I know. That's amazing. You know we, used to, we used to joke with Dr. Vardaman. We used to say that he can see the chromosomes and he probably could. <laughs> He probably could. I bet you could. Do you guys have this experience? Like, I'm sure you've all had really great teachers that have, you know, left a really, really good impression uh, with you. And like, for me, Dr. Medeiros is my path God, right? I like, he's like the ultimate authority on lymphoma for me. Whatever he says is true, right? I believe him with, with all my being. And when I look at cases, Sometimes I swear to God, I hear him inside yep. my head. Like, I'm like, if, if he were describing this case to me, this is how, you know, this is how he would be describing it. And I just, I don't know. I, like sometimes I feel like I'm crazy, but I do hear him. That's, <laughs> my, that's my job. You know, I, I, I teach GI pathology, but uh, I start boring into their brains as first year residents <laughs> because... <laughs> They, of course, 99% of the cases they're going to be able to do just fine all by themselves. But it's for that 1% of cases when they put the slide down and go, oh, I have no idea what this is. And they can take a deep breath and they can go, oh, this is what I learned from Dr. Belizzi. Yeah. Awesome. The voice in my head had a Greek accent for a long time because I treated with Maria Sokos while I was at the NIH. So. <laughs> That's so funny. So Eve, first time we've had you on the show. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about how you got interested in pathology. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, no, I, I took a little bit of time to find my way. Um, I did MD-PhD after that. Um, my, my PhD was in neuroprest stem cells, kind of a applying the principles of purifying hematopoietic stem cells uh, to the neural crest. Uh, so it was kind of a 
I was always kind of close to Heme Path, but I was never really doing it. I was kind of like, you know, how can we look at, you know, how um, these different cell types, how the hierarchy exists within the neural system, similar to some hematopoietic system. Um, but I never, uh, I was always close to Heme Path, but I never got into it at that point. And then I decided to go straight into research, um, then had a little bit of a change of heart, kind of went to the other extreme and became a surgeon for three years. <laughs> Did three years of uh, two years of general surgery and a year of urology, um, and I I don't know. There's a lot of aspects of surgery that I love. Like you go in there, you're going to take care of stuff. It's like, you know, someone has shot off half their face. You're like, don't worry, we've got it. Surgeons are here. You know, like to be part of that team was just extraordinary. Or you know, um, doing the transplants, assisting with the transplants. Obviously, I wasn't doing anything. I was you know first and second year resident, uh, but. Yeah, no, it's it incredible to be part of that team. But at the end of the day, it really wasn't my personality. I kind of like to keep thinking about things for long periods of time after it wasn't really going to be relevant for me or kind of thinking about the mechanism. And um, yeah, and, and so I realized what I really should have been all along was a pathologist. And uh, fortunately, John Hopkins took a chance on me. I said, you know, I had a change of heart. I really think I need to be a pathologist. I know I didn't do any rotations and I don't have any letters or anything, uh, but would you take a chance on me? And, and they said they would. Um, and I went there and, my, and I was thinking, I just did AP only because I'm well, coming from surgery, coming from urology, I should do GU path. We've got Jonathan Epstein there. You know, being a GU pathologist makes a lot of sense. Um, and so one of my first rotations was the heme path rotation. And I was like, okay. Um, but yeah, so it just really took me by surprise. It wasn't something I had considered at all because I was so much on the surgery side. But then I realized, oh, wow, now we're you know, doing all the flow sorting that I was doing on the neural press earlier. Like this is what I really love doing and um, kind of applying all these things to important clinical questions and the, the parts of patient care that I really liked were kind of like thinking about exactly what was going on in the patient and, and putting that whole picture together. And that was really a critical part of team path um, to, to be connected to exactly how the patient presented. And, um, you know, I ended up looking into a lot of stuff like what drugs they were taking and how that influenced their risk of certain lymphomas and things. And I just found it completely fascinating and um, also had excellent mentors there with Mike Horowitz, of course, is the ultimate flow guru. And so being able to kind of hear his thoughts on flow and like the expertise that he had on flow to, to build on um, my past interest in that area. Like I just, I was like, this is amazing. This is what I want to do. And he's like, what? Are you sure? <laughs> like you're not, even, you're not even doing CP training. I was like, ah, oh, well, you know, let's just go with it. Um, yeah, and, and I just loved it. And I had, as part of my fellowship, the chance to work with Elaine Jaffe and uh, Stefania Pitaluga at NIH. And it was just like every day, I just thought it was just the most fascinating day ever to come in there and see these cases that came from all over the country and all over the world that puzzled people and they wanted her expertise on them. And, and to be able to look at those cases and hear her thoughts on those challenging cases, I just thought was just the most incredible month. And I was like, I would you know, love to do that and love to um, be in a place where I can see these unusual things and kind of think about this at that sort of high level. And, and so, yeah, so I feel very grateful to be part of the field and, and um, 
I guess uh, some consoles are going to be going my way <laughs> pretty soon. But, but yeah, no, I think it, it's great. But it's a very supportive field. Um, and, we ha and we have each other. I've sent many cases uh, back and forth to Dr. Jackie since I've been in practice as well. And it's, um, it's a very humbling field. And it's a very evolving field with more to learn every day. And I, and I just love it. It's always interesting to me as we listen to these stories of people telling them to PathPod and to each other on these shows, there's not only a lot of different ways to get to pathology, but there's a lot of places to go once you get here too. So, hey, Mike, I yeah. got into HemePath because I'm really into Bloody Marys. <laughs> <laughs> I think HemePath is a really cool field for a couple of reasons. I, I did, got to do a lot of it as a resident. Even though I was AP only, I got to do heme path and flow cytometry and see cases with Dr. Jaffe at the NIH. And I think flow cytometry is a really interesting aspect of heme path. So why don't you guys tell us real quick, just for the med students and non-pathologists in the audience, give us a little rundown of why that's unique and special and what you can do with that. I would say, so, you know, flow cytometry, when I was a resident uh, in heme path, Flow cytometry is one of the things that really fascinated me and actually was probably one of the biggest uh, factors in helping me decide that I wanted to do hemopath. And the way I describe it to people is that, you know, if you do immunostaining on a slide, uh, when the tissue is fixed and it's, everything is on glass, if you take the same tissue and kind of make it liquid and you do staining in a liquid, that's flow cytometry. So I, I think flow is very, very cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, flow cytometry um, was what basically my entire PhD was kind of based on developing flow techniques. And so it's something that I just have a longstanding love for. But it's a way to look at like individual cells and multiple antigens on single cells to kind of decipher what's going on perhaps in a complex tissue. Maybe you only have a low level of involvement. So you can get a tremendous amount more information uh, from flow cytometry than you can from just straight IHC. No offense to the IHC brothers. <laughs> <laughs> the chromogen sister. None taken. <laughs> or the chromogen sister. Yes. <laughs> None taken. But, hey, but, these uh, techniques yeah. are, they're complementary. Last time we bragged on diagnostic IHC, we said it's more for proteomics, but the advantages of flow cytometry from the non-cytometrist pr perspective are that it's, uh, it's, easy to multiplex and it's eminently quantifiable and those are aspirational things for for me and diagnostic ihc but most of us you know if we have a double stain we're we're pleased and and you guys do 10 color flow like uh you know like like it's like it's me doing a cd45 so you guys are light years ahead you're where i want to be Preach, brother, LCA, preach. you mean. <laughs> <laughs> but no, absolutely, so, um, it's complimentary. I agree. Um, I feel like my role in the show has become uh, adding unsolicited commentary. So if I may add my little unsolicited commentary here for the residents tuning in. Uh, remember, flow cytometry has to be done on fresh tissue. So if you go to a frozen and you get something that looks like it may be a lymphoma or a hematopoietic uh, tumor, don't forget to take some fresh tissue for full cytometry. Otherwise, your attending is going to hate you the next day. And that has to do with the technique itself. So describe a little bit how the technique works. And, and we mentioned multiplexing, but go ahead and describe for us how that works and how many channels can you multiplex right now in the instruments you guys have? Uh, we have eight color and 10 color flow cytometry right now that we're using um, for our you know, routine clinical assays. 
Um, there, you know, obviously there are techniques of doing mass cytometry as well, like Cytoff and other techniques that are fancier. And, you know, you're able to combine a lot of more antigens uh, and staining combinations with those. Uh, but the clinical, you know, what's being used in the clinical setting is eight color and 10 color for us right now. And basically the way it works is that we're able to look at, in addition to antigen expression, we're able to look at two other properties using flow cytometry as well. One is cell size using forward scatter, and the other one is cytoplasmic complexity, and that we are, we are able to determine using side scatter. You know, with those two properties, we can kind of get a sense of what cell type we're looking at. Um, and then we're also able to stain these individual cells that we prepare in, um, you know, in flow cytometry media, which is RPMI, we use RPMI. Uh, we're able to stain them for various different antigens. And this is done kind of for the scientists, um, you know, in the, in the room, or I guess uh, tuning in those with a more scientific background. It's what you do at the bench, right? You get, you make a cell suspension, you start stain the cells with the various different antibodies. And then we use light uh, to detect it. You know, we run the cells through channels and we use light to detect these uh, various antibodies that bind to the cell surface antigen. So if, if a cell expresses CD20 and you stain it with an anti-CD20 antibody, the antibody is going to bind to that. And then we're going to be able to visualize that using flow cytometry and say that this cell actually expresses CD20. So when the cells pass through the flow cytometer, you can use the light that's blocked by forward scatter, the light that's reflected on side scatter, and all the fluorescent channels that are detected by the laser to, to really get a very detailed readout of that single cell that went through the machine. Absolutely. Did I get our three heme path folks? What are your favorite, what's your favorite stain? It can be IHC, it can be flow cytometry. What's your favorite marker to use? Oh, Eber. That's easy. Yeah, I'd love to use, um, yeah. Well, I guess that's, yeah, that's an inside you stain for EBB. Eve calls um, it uh, Ever. I call it Ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so funny because uh, one of my chief residents, when I was a junior resident, used to call me Cam 5.2. Uh, that's why, and that's why, like my one of my, I have two Instagram accounts, like a professional one and one where I pick, uh, post pictures of like you know trees. So the one in which there's a tree is that like my account is called Cam 5.2 with the K though. So what's your favorite heme path marker, Kamran? Um, that's really tricky. I think that. Um, I do. All right. So I think my favorite one is CD30. I love CD30. I don't know why, mm -hmm. but I think it's very, very fun uh, to look at. And, but one of the like nicest stains I ever like saw kind of like in a research setting though, was the IgE. You've seen that. Uh, you've seen that. That is picture. beautiful. That's amazing. Yeah, that, was, yeah. that was a very fun case of Kimura and like the IgE mm -hmm. was like lighting up the follicles. It's just really pretty. Uh, for those of you listeners on Twitter, you can find that case. Um, you know, I guess you can just search for my name and, um, Kimura. Anyway, but yeah, I think CD30 would probably be my favorite. IG Eve, anybody? IG. <laughs> Someone's got to say CD21 awesome. at this point, right? I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. Sanam, what's your favorite marker? My favorite is probably P53. It gets me out of trouble a lot. You know, it helps me a lot. So um, I, I love it. Hey, so, Michael, what's your favorite heme path stain? Oh, boy. I, I think the one I, I find the most useful in pediatric pathology is TDT. Nice, clean, nuclear stain. 
you're very confident you have a lymphoblastic lymphoma when you get a positive. That's the one that I, I really like because it makes my life a lot easier. My favorite heme path stain is the CD123 TCF4 double stain. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mic drop a thousand times. <laughs> wow. That's I hope Corey is listening to this, this podcast because he would be very pleased to hear you say that. Whatever. This. You guys do neat stuff. I'm a fanboy. So ed- educate us. When do you use that? So that stain is amazing. Um, really, it really is. It's not just one of those stains that's like 100% sensitive and specific when it comes out, but then it just goes downhill from there. It's still actually really good. Um, so, you know, we use it for uh, plasma cytodendritic cells, right? Plasma cytodendritic cells have very high levels of CD123 expression. And um, also they're positive for TCF4, which is a nuclear transcription factor, right? So uh, the combination of those two together, this is a dual stain. It's a red chromogen um, CD123 and a brown chromogen TCF4. Uh, So it stains both the membrane and the nucleus of the cell. Uh, Together, it's virtually 100% sensitive slash specific for plasma cytodendritic cells. Now where short it falls a little bit short is that it won't tell you if the cell is neoplastic or benign. It just tells you that it's of plasma cytodendritic cell lineage, right? You still have to figure out if it's benign or malignant, but you know, you, you should be able to do that with morphology. Right. I mean, that's like CD20. It's yeah. one of the best stains exactly. ever, but it doesn't tell yeah. you that it's benign or malignant. It just tells you it's exactly. a B cell. That's well, right. honestly, or even CD30, those, uh, those CD, th- those scattered CD30 cells that are activated, whatever Even cells up, yeah, always yeah. scare the bejesus <laughs> out of me. That's right. That's when you need yeah. the EVA to make sure it's not. <laughs> yeah, the EVA. EVA. Oh my God. That's what I'm going to be calling it from now on. And I'm going to be putting it in my reports as EVA. I mean, seriously, <laughs> nobody else will understand our jokes until they, they hear path part. <laughs> But I, I, okay, this is a true story, and I think I have a tweet about it to prove it. Whenever I type EB in my phone to text anything, it just automatically types Eber. It wants to autocorrect to Eber. Like, that's how much of a hematopathologist my iPhone is. It's a sure sign. When, <laughs> when your iPhone has you figured out. I know. I have to say this double staining business is always so fun. Like I, we don't use any in like um, in routine practice, but uh, in fellowship, we used to have a, a PAX-5 CD3 stain, which I thought was really cool, right? Because PAX-5 was nuclear CD3. So so like one time we identified a composite lymphoma like that. It was really cool. It had like a T cell and a B cell component and like it just wow. beautifully differentiated them. It was, it was really cool. That is awesome. So, you know, do, do you guys know Joe Curry? On Twitter. Andy Anderson? On Twitter, yeah. yeah. Right. So he's our, the director of our IHC lab, and he is amazing at developing these dual stains. So two other ones that we have that are really, really nice. One is a CD5 PAX5 dual stain, which is obviously amazing for um, CLL and mantle cell. And you kind of can even use it for MRD, maybe a little bit, right? I mean, we know that there are normal non-neoplastic B cells that also sometimes show CD5 expression. But in the setting, you know, of, of known disease, I think it's, uh, it becomes highly relevant. And then uh, the other one is my favorite, P53, with CD34. So he has a ah. dual CD34, P53, P53 too, and that's also very, uh, very nice. 
Eve, do you have a favorite double stain? Oh, yeah. So at Cornell, we also had a um, Cyclone D1 CD138 double stain, which was actually really powerful for detecting. Well, you could use it at diagnosis, which wasn't necessarily as useful, but um, for follow-up. For MRD, we found it was more sensitive in some cases than the flow. Um, and fish is also variably sensitive. But yeah, but yeah it, was, it was a very cool stain because you could even find just a few random double positive cells for myeloma. Yeah. So for the audience, the double stains are when you use two antibodies, one that's directed against a nuclear antigen, one that's directed against a membranous antigen, and use different chromogens to turn one red and the other brown. The antibodies have to be different species, so you can have different secondaries. Any other tips on how to develop those stains? No, I mean, you know, what you said, the localization obviously has to be different, uh, and then the chromogens that you use. We also have a CD3 CD... Um, CD3 PAX5. Is that what you said you have, Conrad? Yeah. Yeah, that's yep, what I said. Yep. And you know what? The, uh, the species don't even have to be different. There's different ways to develop double, double stains. You can you could just apply everything simultaneously, but you can, also, you can also perform double stains by applying them sequentially. The one I'm struggling with is someone wants me to make a double stain to two nuclear antigens simultaneously, but. Well, we also had one double stain that was both nuclear, yeah. which worked very, very well with KI67 and MOM1. Also kind of look at proliferation rate at diagnosis of plasmasonia. Blue and red no, made purple. <laughs> blue and red made purple, but maybe a yellow, I don't know about a yellow stain. I mean, you don't want to, yeah, I don't know, you got to stay away from the yellow stain. But um, the other one I was pretty interested in, but I don't know if anybody does this anymore, was, was looking at um, Eber, of course, um, with <laughs> CD3 and CD20 to try to see if you had reactivation um, within B cells or potentially within a T cell population. And that had some challenges trying to combine um, the inside you with IHC. And there was some back and forth about which one you should do first. I don't know if you had any thoughts on, on doing those type of stains. That sounds like fun. If anybody else had tried those. Repeat like until fun. positive. Yeah, there's, there's no rhyme or reason to it. You just, you just try it both ways and see what works best. Oh, all right. That's what we're doing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys have NPM1 staining? No, I wish we did. No. We actually just got fun. it at Cornell. Yeah, it's nice. I don't know if we'll have it. Um, at the clinic yet, but it, it worked pretty well. It was, yeah. So you do sensitive. the nuclear like versus cytoplasmic, right? The localization. Yeah, we had it at the University of Chicago. We don't have it here. So what is NPM1? Yeah, nucleophosphamin one. So like AMLs with NPM1 mutations, the blast, like normally you have like nuclear like localization of NPM1, but in mutated NPM1, like it has cytoplasmic staining. It actually was pretty cool. I, they just started and I left, so. I had the discussion uh, at Frozen section with the fellow a few day a few days ago. I was covering Frozens and and uh, I rarely cover Frozens. I mainly do GI and the General Surgical Pathology Service covers Frozens, but they they let me play General Surgical Pathologist from time to time and and we had a specimen. It was you know you know suspect lymphoma, do flow. And I, you know, I asked the fellow, I said, what, you know, why do you need to send this for flow? I, I uh, you know, I can make a diagnosis of lymphoma in paraffin. So I, yeah, I'd like to hear you guys riff on, on how they're, on how they're complementary. It turned out to be granulomatous inflammation, of, of course. <laughs> <laughs>
you know, one could argue granulomatous inflammation is also hematopoietic technically. It sure is. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't blastic plasmacytoid dendritic cell neoplasm. See, that's what you need IHC. Because if you don't have IHC in hematopoietic tissues, then a lot of things could look very, very similar. Okay. Discohesive is just not good enough, you know, to like, se- you know, separate different entities. So I'm actually interested to know, like, seriously, how, uh, how do you guys approach this? I mean, at my, um, you know, institution or in, in my practice, let's say on a follicular lymphoma that's been sent for flow, and I already know it looks like follicular lymphoma, it's CD20 positive, 10 positive, and it's monotypic for light chain expression. All I'm going to do really is BCL2, BCL6, a CD21 to make sure that there's, you know, residual uh, FTC meshworks and a CAN67. I don't do the other immunos that are, you know, already there by flow. I completely agree. I guess that there are institutions where flow is done separately and, uh, you know, tissues are looked at completely separately. And it would have been ideal if like they have some sort of a crosstalk between them. So I can see if, for example, you're in isolation, um, you know, I mean, flow would just be called a germinal center origin, like, you know, monotypic B cell process, right? I mean, because they they don't see the tissue follicular lymphoma as a morphologic diagnosis in many ways. But I completely agree with Sanam that, uh, you know, I mean, if in our case, for example, our CD10 sometimes is negative by flow. Like we just know it's kind of dimmer. So effectively, if I had a lesion which looked exactly like that, maybe I would do CD10 on top of what Sanam is saying. But other than that, uh, I think that it's totally reasonable provided you have all the tissue and all of the data to interpret together. You know, I think that that's the key. But it's still a bunch of stains though, right? So like, I mean, you're doing three or four stains on potentially something because, you know, I mean, otherwise, you know, nodular kind of follicular looking things could be any type of lymphoma. We just know that it happens to be follicular lymphoma. So I guess the whole context was that people will still criticize us. That's the problem. So I would say that, you know, part of, there's a lot of things that I think as pathologists, right, we can diagnose just based on morphology, right? Uh, I mean, maybe less so in heme, but more so in solid tumors. But in terms of being, um, you know, crossing your T's and dotting your I's, and actually, like, when someone else reads your report, they're going to expect to see those markers and to see the results of those markers. So just because, you know, you know that, just because I know that this is follicular lymphoma, it doesn't mean that the oncologist is necessarily going to trust me saying, I know it's follicular lymphoma. They want me to do the stains. They want to see those stains documented in the report, right? So, absolutely right. Eve, how do you use IHC complementary with flow? Yeah, I mean, actually, uh, both at Hopkins and then more recently at Cornell, there were some issues with the double billing and reimbursement. And so it was um, particularly key that we did not do the same stains on the same specimen by two different methods. And so I would do similar. to what's been described as doing like the BCL2, BCL6, KI, and dendritic meshworks typically. Um, or, you know, if I felt like I, there, if there were like a lot of T cells in there and I needed to define exactly where the B cells were, like use a secondary B cell marker like Pax5, um, but not repeat the same markers. Uh, and I think that's reasonable. I think, yeah, you shouldn't necessarily, if you know they're 20 positive, unless there's an issue with identifying the cells morphologically. So yeah, so you may need to do it for those reasons. But unless I you know, specifically need to justify it that way, I don't, I try not to. I try not to repeat them. Right. 
I guess I'd say from my perspective, it sounds like you guys aren't ordering enough stains. <laughs> yeah. But I, think, I think that was because the example that Dr. Logavi gave was an excellent one, right? I mean, everything goes, goes down the toilet when it comes to, let's say, Hodgkin lymphoma, right? So flow is negative. You didn't know it was Hodgkin, you know, unless like you can somehow pick up like some CD30 positive cells, but then you can't diagnose Hodgkin. And then like you look at it and then let's say there's lots of EOs and how do you know it's not a T-cell lymphoma with large cells and EOs versus a classic Hodgkin lymphoma, you know? or an anaplastic lymphoma. I mean, it's like there's so many things. And so in, in that case, uh, this concept of us trying to be, uh, you know, good guardians of healthcare dollars and like not wasting extra money, uh, it goes down the toilet because it's really for patient care, right? Ultimately, that diagnosis is for patient care. And so in my mind, I think if I'm putting a stain on it, which I think might be one extra, but it's important for the diagnosis, then it's not extra then it's just diagnosis. Well, that's, that's interesting. You mentioned the example of Hodgkin lymphoma. What, you know, why not do a touch prep? So I, I mentioned that we had the frozen that was rule out lymphoma and we did a touch prep and it was granulomatous inflammation and we didn't send it for flow. How often, how often in your guys practices is material just chopped up and sent for flow without giving it some at least cursory examination? Yeah. I mean, I think so. So no, absolutely. You need to do a touch prep 110%, right? So a lot of your decisions, your whole triage, your decision tree starts there. But I think classic Hodgkin lymphoma is a little bit tricky because like just seeing the large cells, I mean, be careful. I know that I have extremely dear and amazing and respected and respectable colleagues who are cytopathologists who can make those calls and I salute them. But, you know, calling things like nodular lymphocyte predominant Hodgkin lymphoma on a touch prep, I mean, that's really difficult right? You need to know the phenotype of those cells. If you're looking, I mean, for, so to me, a touch imprint is for triage, right? Are you dealing with something that is all small monotonous cells? One, one direction of thinking. Is it a complete mixture of cell types, right? Like a germinal center or something. That's a second one. And then the third one is large cells in a background of a mixed infiltrate, right? And maybe actually a fourth one is when they're all large cells. So those to me are the, is the decision tree for touch imprint. But then within those, you still need IHC or flow to kind of uh, hone things down further, like become more granular. Um, yeah, with the Hodgkin reed sternberg like cells, you can see them in a number of different environments. You can see them coming up in the background of angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphomas. You can see them in the setting of CLL. So I think unless um, I have a concern, for example, if I saw a granulomatous inflammation, well, is there a concern for TB? And then where you're making like single cell droplets and aerosolizing the material, well, in that case, you're like, eh, probably not worth it to do flow. Um, but otherwise, I think, yeah, it, it prevents you from... Um, missing a potential abnormal T-cell population or abnormal B-cell population that, that may be in the background, even if you do have the Reed-Sternberg cells. Um, so then the other thing, um, Andrew, going back to your question about, uh, you know, let's say, why do we do flow? You know, what is the advantage of doing flow to just doing IHC? I think where flow is particularly helpful for me is for um, small B-cell lymphomas that, you know, that are not necessarily CLL or a follicular lymphoma where I can show by IHC that this is an aberrant population, right? Yeah. Let's say if I have a um, marginal zone lymphoma, making a diagnosis becomes very, very difficult if it's in a core biopsy, it's subtle, and it doesn't express CD43. Basically, my only savior at that point will be showing that the B cells are monotypic, right? So I think in those instances, it's very helpful. 
but you're right in a subset of cases it probably doesn't matter we can probably do what we would do by flow you know using ifc i love it because uh Malt lymphoma is the bane of my existence. I'm a GI pathologist, so that's <laughs> right, my lymph- right. that's my lymphoma, yeah, and it's right. immunophenotype is an it's a null immunophenotype. It's oh, yeah. there's too many B cells. They're supposed to co-express CD43, but they never they never do. Exactly. And like, yeah, not when you need it. And yeah. I can't and I can't uh, you know get my malt lymphomas to be monotypic by IHC or ish. No. So yeah, flow obviously flow is best. I'll just stay home. <laughs> I'm really interested in uh, your heme path journal clubs that you seem to to do through social media. What are those all about, and and how can I how can I join? How can I nerd out? I you know I I want to keep learning every day. We should do the next one on uh, malt lymphoma and the GI tract, and have you come in. That would be great. Totally. Yeah, that would be great. Totally. That'd right. be awesome. So HemePath Journal Club is, uh, you know, it has its own Twitter account. I'm sure you've seen. HemePath Journal Club is at HemePathJC. So it's actually, uh, it was started by one of our um, graduated residents who was an APCP resident here at Loyola. He is currently the HemePath Fellow at Yale. His name is Dr. Adil Ahmed. At Adil, A-A-D-I-L, Ahmed, A-H-M-E-D-M-D on Twitter. Um, and he started that uh, process. And I think, to be honest with you, um, you know, even even though he started it, I know Dr. Logavi and Dr. Creed Crane actually just did a recent uh, journal club as well, which was amazing. So everyone here has participated in those. And I think it's really great. But this idea wasn't novel because pathology journal clubs existed, especially like even cytopathology journal clubs, dermpath journal clubs, they've all kind of existed before. So it's a Open invitation to everybody. Everyone is welcome. And uh, typically, I think Adil or some other hematopathology kind of faculty here or, or on Twitter decide what the paper is. We try and be very timely, pick up on an article. You know, hopefully, if the authors themselves can participate, that makes it really amazing. But even if they can't, then, you know, we typically have it moderated by somebody. That's really good that you're excited by it, that, you know, and you should join us. Can I get some more details? Do, do you do it once a week or once every couple weeks? And, and, and how does one log in? One of the things that I love about, um, obviously, I think HemePath has a very strong presence on Twitter in general, right? Like there are a bunch of us that are like totally <laughs> Twitter crazy and like see it all the time. But um, so one of the things that I think happened with HemePath JC or the HemePath Journal Club is that um, we got, you know, we got clinicians uh, to become interested in it. And so they routinely participate if the subject of, you know, uh, discussion is in their area of expertise, they actually like to participate in it too. So I, but like the one that Eve did this last time, got a lot of participation from like big, big names in the field, which was, you know, very, very exciting, but also kind of, I thought, intimidating too. It was a little intimidating. Yeah, it was exciting though. I think it had a very broad reach and people yeah. were tuning in. Yeah, from, from research, from hemong, from pathology. It was fantastic. Yeah. What, uh, what was the last paper that you discussed? So this is a paper uh, from Dr. Rob Hasergian at Mass General, um, kind of proposing um, how we look at clonal hematopoiesis versus minimal residual disease in the setting of following up for AML. Uh, because, you know, obviously AML may have mutations in TET2, 
and those may persist after treatment that may be just part of clonal hematopoiesis and kind of the whole treatment may kind of alter that microenvironment and cause different clones to grow versus um, recede as a result of the treatment. So it was kind of defining uh, different terms that we can use in this setting to better understand, you know, what can we really hang our hat on? That's minimal residual disease versus that's clonal hematopoiesis or, you know, that's something that is like some donor derived clone that we don't need to worry about. Um, and so he teamed up with several of the people in the Boston area that have been studying clonal hematopoiesis. And it was a very, um, it was kind of a, a review paper, kind of a Kind of a thought-provoking paper to say how should we approach this as a field to create something useful um, for pathologists to report that'll be useful to the clinicians and so um, when i saw that paper come up i was like oh this is a really good one to discuss but i didn't necessarily expect that the whole um, clonal hematopoiesis community would join in but they did and it was just really fantastic so must, must be an important question what's the what's the answer um, you know, so I mean, there are certain things, um, certain AML defining translocations, obviously, if you're going to detect um, PML RARA, you know, that's going to be residual disease, most likely. Um, so yeah, so he kind of, you know, stepped down kind of had different levels of certainty that, you know, certainly things like TET2 um, is often in some sort of clone that predates uh, the, the AML. So yeah, so I thought it, it was nicely done kind of summarizing what we know kind of where um, deficits in our knowledge are and kind of a call kind of a call to action like it's not the end-all be-all paper like um, we're gonna have to revise this as our understanding improves over time but but yeah no I think um, it ended up being very interesting because each of these individual gene mutations can have a different effect. And so people kind of got in thinking about kind of the mechanism of recurrence or, you know, how your mechanism of AML arising and things based on these mutations. So the discussion was just got much more interesting than I could have even anticipated. So it was, it was cool. It just took on a life of it of itself. So I think it's just, really incredible that, that this was started and brought us all together in this way. What, uh, what was the attendance like? Sounds like it was uh, jammed. The hashtag got 1.3 million impressions. Uh, it had 315 individual tweets and 53 active participants. That's not bad. That's great. great. No, it's yeah. great. Yeah, it was great. And what platform do you guys use to host the journal club? Twitter. It's all on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. But the the Paths JC uh, journal clubs have like we we used to have it every month and they were very well attended. It's been harder to recruit people necessary to present because it's gotten a little bit more intense. Um, but Sanjay Mukhopadhyay recently presented with his vaping article, and it was fascinating because people from the vaping community joined in, um, clinicians, pathologists, and it was a very uh, and and I think there's, there's been some difficulties i guess with the vaping community like it's obviously um it's obviously negative press to have this catastrophic lung injury and an interesting discussion so it was a really that was a really nice journal club there too since i don't understand how social media works how how to if you're engaging on twitter how is it just one reply after another how does the how does the conversation flow in 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 such a venue um, so that's a good question. So yeah, so everyone has like their own kind of Twitter handle, like I'm at Eve Marie Crane or whatever. So people could follow me and just see my tweets. But 
to have a conversation maybe with people you don't even know are there. That's what this hashtag business is about. So you'll define a hashtag that's specific to that discussion. Mm -hmm. And so that way you can just set your account. Hey, just show me everything that says hashtag KeenPathJC. And every time you make a tweet about the topic, you include that hashtag. Um, so it's so nice. Those people you wouldn't normally, maybe you didn't know they were out there. You can, you can hear them on that same topic. Is there a time that you, that you designate for discussion or does, you know, does it drag? It sounds like this last one was, uh, you know, generated <laughs> such interest that there's probably still, still people commenting. Yeah, when you, cut, guess, it, when uh, you cut it off. There were a few, uh, yeah, it went on for a while, but I guess it, um, we organized it around an hour, basically just an hour long discussion. Um, for Path JC for a while, we also had like a European time and kind of a, we had like two different times so that way um, more people could join in. And yeah, it was, that was a lot of fun. That, that actually increased the engagement quite a bit. You rotate uh, who, is there, is there a moderator? I mean, what is the moderator's role other than Selecting the art, maybe selecting the article, and saying, "Hey, this is this is the time, this is the hour that 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 will be on about this article." Yeah, I mean, I think people each. And it depends on the paper too. Um, they just decide. You know, they tweet out a question like, "Okay, first, you know, let's talk about you know this issue," and you know, so then they just kind of lead the discussion and like now everybody chime in. Like, does everybody like CD thirty or whatever? And you chime in on that topic or something. And so that way it's somewhat organized. Although I think I can't really describe that for my last. <laughs> it just was like, it's always like no. a life of it its own. It was super organized. What are you talking about? People it are was probably amazing. still talking about it. Exactly. He hasn't <laughs> been on Twitter very long, but he's already got 2,000 followers. So he's still, still catching on. He's still pretty good. <laughs> he's amazing. So, several of you mentioned uh, follicular dendri dendritic meshworks. And... Uh, I was wondering, my friend Dennis was was bragging on a paper that Sanam had been pointing out about uh, EZH2 mutations in follicular lymphoma. And I'm wondering, is, is that one of the papers that you presented at HemePath Journal Club? No, but we actually should. That would be an yeah. amazing paper. Although I think it's really, um, so that paper is very basic science heavy. Uh, it's not really like a practical, um, you know, something that people, you know, may be able to apply to their routine practice as, let's say, pathologists, but it's an amazing paper. So it's by um, the, um, it's by Dr. Uh, Ari Melnick's group. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, it's incredible. The science they do on these cell lymphomas is incredible at his lab. I guess, uh, what what was the the finding was that there was a recurrent mutation in EZH2 that let that leads to or that's involved in the the pathogenesis of follicular lymphoma? Uh, could that potentially have a diagnostic application, or was it was it ubiquitous? Did all follicular lymphomas have it? No, they don't. Not all follicular lymphomas have it. A lot of follicular lymphomas have alterations of EZH2 some through mutations, yeah. other through copy number changes, uh, or, you know, various other changes. But it's, it, I don't think you can use it as a diagnostic marker because not all follicular lymphomas obviously have EZH2 mutations. But it's one of the most recurrent mutations or altered pathways sure. in follicular lymphoma. But what this paper actually did 
is it proposes a mechanism of how EZH2 alterations contribute to disease pathology. And so, you know, you know how papers have to, they don't have to, but a lot of the, the high impact journals now have graphical abstracts, right? So for their graphical abstract, they had shown um, some centrocytes interacting with the FDC meshworks and how through EZH2 mutations and activating EZH2 uh, alterations, these FD FDC meshworks actually proliferate. So I'll tell you that like in my very naive uh, view, I always just thought that the F FDC meshworks were expanded because there's a proliferation of the lymphoma cells. And so, you know, they're confined in this closed space. So the FDC meshworks got expanded and disrupted. But I think it's actually part of that, you know, they show that this is actually part of the disease biology. And it's not necessarily just a physical expansion of the meshwork. But, you know, the way these cells interact with one another contributes to disease pathology. Can you, can you explain to me what a follicular dendritic meshwork is and because you all you all mentioned that you use that you do IHC for FDCs in your diag in your diagnostics of follicular right. lymphoma I do too but I don't really know why <laughs> <laughs> can you can you tell me a little bit about what follicular dendritic meshworks are and what markers you you use to highlight them I, I use CD21 and how you use you know marking follicular dend dendritic meshworks in lymphoma diagnosis, follicular lymphoma, or any other diagnostic applications? Every lymph node has a histiocytic component, right? I mean, whether they're like these kissing kind of interdigitating cells or like follicular dendritic cells or whatever. And so in my mind, I think that the beautiful germinal center, the follicle, like, you know, when you have a secondary follicle, you have a follicular dendritic meshwork that is really holding the B cells together. Like, that's how I imagine it, right? So it's like this very nice kind of catch-all for the B cells. And like Sanam was saying that, you know, there's expansion of it and there can be, you know, elimination of it, et cetera. And so I think for follicular lymphoma, where this discussion is coming from, uh, being able to prove that their underlying follicular dendritic meshworks in B-cell lymphomas uh, are very important, especially for follicular lymphoma, right? Because you then realize that it's a follicular expansion in those cases that it's not obvious on H&E. But there are other, other lymphomas too, right? Like nodular lymphocyte predominant Hodgkin lymphoma has an expanded meshwork oftentimes. Uh, and germinoblastic T-cell lymphoma, you kind of think about that too. So I think it's very useful. CD21 is what we use as well. You can use CD23 as well, but CD23 al almost always marks like the B-cells too. And then you want to kind of see the, like the pattern, like that arbor arborizing, I guess is the word, like, you know, that very neural network looking pattern. And so you can, you can probably use 23 as well. Some places that I have visited use both together. CD23, Sanam was on uh, with, I, I mentioned my friend, Dennis O'Malley, uh, hematopathologist, and he was giving a uh, slide seminar, uh, slide webinar to the MD Anderson folks and CD23 came up as stain stain he intensely dislikes I said stain I hates on Twitter and I got a little blowback so now it's stain I intensely dislike I mean it's it's not like the vimentin of heme path you know but you know it, it still has some utility I think deep what's yeah, your I don't favorite use it either yeah, I mean, I do CD21 first, and then if that's negative, but I still feel like I need to exclude that there aren't uh, dendritic metrics, I won't say there aren't unless I've done a CD23 also. 
and I have not yet had access to the mythical beast of CD35, <laughs> but someday, but I don't know, but maybe you catch some that you, I don't know if there's some, usually if the, I don't see a bite either, and it, it, I usually don't feel like they're hiding there after that. But So what does a yeah. CD21 look like in a marginal zone lymphoma that's colonizing follicles? follicles yeah, i apologize I, for asking who, who's, who's di difficult no, no, questions no. these are these have been burning questions for me since i was a resident i've i've never had <laughs> access to three hematopathologists at once before <laughs> so i will tell you i actually love cd21 uh i use it for various um various reasons so um the major, you know, major reason, obviously, being, um, you know, diagnostically, uh, we use it to say something is follicular versus something is diffuse in a germinal center derived B cell lymphoma, right? So by definition, you need to have absent dendritic meshworks to call something diffuse, right? And this includes follicular lymphoma versus diffuse large B cell lymphoma. And also nodular lymphocyte predominant Hodgkin lymphoma versus T cell histiocyte rich large B cell transformation of nodular lymphocyte predominant Hodgkin lymphoma. So those are, I think, the, the two main, I guess, diagnostic utilities for this thing. But I think what, what it really um, also, you know, it adds for me and gives information on is also the lymph node architecture, right? So if I'm struggling to make something a lymphoma, say, you know, something is a lymphoma. If I do a CD21 stain and I see that the FDC meshworks are expanded, proliferated, disrupted, I'm much more comfortable. Like, let's say in that marginal zone lymphoma of, you know, yours uh, versus just a marginal zone hyperplasia. If I see that the FDC meshworks are blown, then I feel much more comfortable saying this lymph node architecture is effaced and that this is probably a neoplastic process. Or let's say an angioinoblastic T-cell lymphoma, seeing those disrupted FDC meshworks and expanded FDC meshworks really helps me make that diagnosis. If I'm struggling, if I don't have you know, flow, if I don't have a good PD-1 you know, or other evidence to support my diagnosis. So I think that's also very important. I would say those are the two main uh, main reasons that you know I like it, um, and I use it. I think it's my new favorite stain. I'm going to do it on every everything with lymphocytes. <laughs> do it! Use it. Oh, oh, the other thing, the other thing that the one thing that you just mentioned is in the differential diagnosis. So my favorite two stains to differentiate follicular colonization of marginal zone lymphoma versus follicular lymphoma are CD21 and KI67. And I will tell you how that helps. So when you do this stain, you actually, when you do CD21 in follicular lymphoma, more often than not, the follicles are expanded and the FDC meshworks are expanded, but they're not necessarily lysed or disrupted, oh. right? When marginal zone lymphoma, because if you think about it spatially, marginal zone lymphoma is coming from the outside. It's coming inside the follicles, right? So it actually destroys the meshworks as it comes in. So the meshworks look completely, completely disrupted in marginal zone lymphoma. And KA67 is very helpful when you're trying to differentiate between marginal zone lymphoma and follicular lymphoma. Because if you think about it, you know, obviously this, this differential becomes um, 
becomes relevant when, when it's a low grade, more of a low grade lymphoma, right? So when you do TI67 on follicular lymphoma, because the follicles are neoplastic, they usually have lower proliferation index than what you would expect in a reactive germinal center that has a very high proliferation index. When you have marginal zone lymphoma colonizing the follicles, when you do KI67, you actually see those residual benign germinal centers and you see the tight clusters of KI67 positive cells. That's also very helpful. So the combination of those two stains together is very helpful in making that differential. Sold. I'm going to the lab right now. I'm going to make a CD21 key 67 double stain. I'm going to I'm an all-nighter. All Don't do a double stain. It won't work. Well, it's happened again. You've squandered another perfectly good hour listening to IHC talk. I'll never look at a key 67 the same way again. And if you think it's a lymphoma, be sure to send it fresh. Don't stain like my brother. Don't stain like mine. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Support for the Free Path Pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. Thank you for listening to this episode of PathPod. Make sure to subscribe to PathPod on whatever app or apps you may be watching PathPod on. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod. I have to say, guys, I love IHC Talk. This is actually a lot of fun. <laughs> it is. It's awesome. just an uh, opportunity to hang out with Ginger. Yeah. Oh, That's right. <laughs>